want to thank the music team for their hard work and practice and preparation to come and to lead us this morning in singing the praises of our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, in my line of work, you get to be with people in all kinds of circumstances of life. The very blessed and joyous and happy time of a wedding to the very sad and difficult times of funerals. It wasn't very long ago that I was standing with a family next to an open grave. And every time I do that, a thought runs through my mind of that ancient question that is on the lips of most people. And it is this. If a person dies, will they live again? If a man dies, will he live again? It's one of the oldest questions humanity has asked. When the first man, Adam, fell in his disobedience in the garden, taking of the fruit that was prohibited to him by God, he plunged not only himself, but all of humanity that would descend from his loins into corruption and moral ruin. The result of his transgression was not only his own death, but the death of the human race. Death entered into God's good creation at that point. Never God's intent, but nonetheless the consequence of the sin. In fact, you don't have to read very far in the Bible to begin to see the effect of Adam's sin upon the race. As early as Genesis chapter 5, we arrive at what many theologians call the graveyard of the Bible. For there in Genesis 5 are, are listed in order the descendants of Adam. And in those ancient days, human life extended well beyond anything that we know in our time. Speaks of people living for hundreds and hundreds of years, yea, up to even 900 plus years. And yet the sad refrain in Genesis chapter 5, at the end of each of the names in that genealogy, is it finished with the statement, and he died. Adam lived 930 years, it says, and he died. His son Seth lived 912 years, and he died. His descendant Enosh lived 905 years, and he died. The descendant Canaan lived 910 years, and he died. And on it goes, eight times. Like the peals of a church bell. And he died. And he died. And he died. Death is certain. There is no avoiding it. But it doesn't end there because the Bible tells us that it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment comes. It doesn't all end there. It's it's not that one goes extinct at that point. There is physical death and And then there is judgment. It is an inescapable reality. Humanity is all too aware of this. 
foreboding reality and has made many attempts through the ages to try to answer the question, to try to bring a measure of comfort to the human heart. Attempting to really evade the real issue, and that is our accountability to the Creator who has loaned us life. Many have tried. There is Buddha, born 560 B.C., died 480 B.C., still dead. There is Confucius, born 550 B.C., died 479 B.C., still dead. There is Muhammad, born A.D. 570, died A.D. 632, still dead. Joseph Smith, born A.D. 1805, died 1844. Still dead. Karl Marx, born 1818, died 1883. Still dead. Mary Baker Eddy, born 1821, died 1910. Still dead. Charles Taze Russell, Born 1852, died 1916, still dead. Jesus of Nazareth, born 5 B.C., still alive, beloved. Amen. And that's why we are here today. That's why we're here. It is because of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ that he lives forevermore and that through faith in him you too can have the life of God. You know, at the crucifixion, his followers were scattered. The Bible says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. They wanted nothing to do at that point. They were bewildered. They were discouraged. They were frightened and they scattered. The gospel accounts make it absolutely clear that nothing or no one but the risen Savior himself could transform this frightened band into a powerful and bold evangelistic force that would turn the world upside down. In fact, we measure human history by the man whose name they proclaim. True belief for them came only when Jesus Christ himself appeared in their midst and showed them what Luke says in Acts chapter 1 as many convincing proofs. If you're not there already, open your Bible up to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, we will be focusing on verses 36 to 49. And as we do, we want to look at seven of these convincing proofs that Luke talks about. Seven convincing proofs for the resurrection. So that you might know that Jesus is alive 
And that because he lives, you may live also. That's the message of Easter. Jesus is alive. And because he is alive, you may live also. You may live also. The first proof of that resurrection is what I'm calling the evidence of testimony. The evidence of testimony. It begins back in verse 13, actually, of chapter 24. It occurs in the afternoon of that first Sunday, that first resurrection day. The women have already visited the tomb early before the sun came up. And there they encountered the empty tomb and the angels who said, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. And they went back to tell the disciples. Peter himself and John raced to the tomb, peering in and finding it empty. This buzz began to circulate, and so now on Sunday afternoon, we encounter two of his disciples, two men. And it says, verse 13, Behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. He said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things that have happened here these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning, and they did not find his body. They came seeing that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And the account goes on. It tells us that Jesus acted as if he was going to continue on the journey beyond the village of Emmaus, and they invite him to come and break bread with them. Stay, have dinner with us. And so he stays. Verse 30, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, Jesus that is, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. The Old Testament law of Moses required that any legal account be verified on the basis of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. 
The evidence must be on the basis of two or three witnesses. Here we've had many. These two disciples on their way to Emmaus, encounter the resurrected Lord, and they cannot get back fast enough to tell what they have seen. Verse 36, while they were telling these things, they're reporting to the disciples. At this point in time, they are all gathered together in in a room. They're hiding, it says, in a state of shock and dismay, despair. The windows and the doors are locked in the room in which they're meeting, we're told in John's gospel, because of the fear of the Jewish authorities that they might come and and gather them all up and lead them away as well. It's into this midst come the witnesses and then Christ himself. The first evidence Luke provides for us is the evidence of the testimony of those who had seen the resurrected Christ. Secondly, he provides us with what I'm calling the evidence of sight. The evidence of sight. Verse 36, while they're telling these things in the middle of this room with the locked doors and windows, he himself, that is Jesus, stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be to you. It's an incredible account. Suddenly, it's the idea. Suddenly, in the, in the midst of the room, appears Jesus. The Greek is very, very emphatic here. He himself appeared in their midst. Now, skeptics through the ages have long attempted to try to deal with this account. How could this be? Over the centuries, a, a number of of popular and somewhat ridiculous ideas have been floated to evade the the obvious and plain statement of the gospel text. Some have suggested that that Jesus, having swooned on the cross, that is not really having died but merely fainted, and then revived himself, climbed up a ladder to this upper room and climbed through the window, and, and behold, he appeared in their midst. Others have suggested he he descended some sort of a stairway from the roof. Others, he he entered the room before the doors were locked and hid in the corner and then popped out. Some say he slipped in when they opened the door to let the two disciples in from Emmaus in the beginning of verse 36. Others, that the servant secretly opened the door and let him in. It takes more faith to believe such foolish notions than to receive the clear testimony of the Word of God. The resurrected Christ entered the room not through the door, not through the window, but he passed through the wall into their presence in his glorified body. A body that is no longer limited by physical barriers like walls or doors. Or might I say, rock tombs. You know, the stone was rolled away not for Jesus to get out, but for everybody else to be able to get in and to see that he is not here. He has risen just as he said. 
The sight of Christ in their midst is, is so wonderful, so unexpected, their first reaction is fear. Look at verse 37. They were startled and frightened. They thought they were seeing a spirit. Now listen, they've already heard a lot of testimony. They've heard the testimony of the women. They've heard the testimony of Peter. They've heard now the testimony of these two disciples that from the village of Emmaus. And, and yet, it's still their hearts are not ready to receive the truth. They are unwilling to quickly embrace the reality of the resurrection of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse 12 and following, Mark gives an an account of the same basic events, and he says it this way, that after that, he that is Jesus, in a different form, appeared to two of them, and they were walking along on their way to the country. This is the two on the way to Emmaus. And they went further and reported it to the others, but they did not believe them either. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table. And this is the point. He reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. There was still a barrier of hardness and unbelief to the reality before them of the resurrected Jesus Christ. In fact, Luke tells us at the moment when Jesus is standing in their midst, they think he is a spirit, a phantom, a ghost. They are so disturbed by his sudden appearance. Beloved, this falsifies any notion that they were expecting to encounter the resurrected Jesus Christ. That they had somehow projected that expectation onto a hallucination and that there was a mass hallucination that occurred there. And that's really what they encountered. Not at all. They were not looking for him. When he appeared in their midst, they were not inclined to believe. In fact, they were just the opposite, inclined to explain it away. Evidence of testimony. The evidence of sight. Third convincing proof, the evidence of hearing. Verse 38, And he said to them, Why are you troubled, and why do doubts arise in your hearts? He doesn't say to them, It's okay. It's okay. I know it's kind of hard to believe. I know you really weren't expecting me. And so, and so it's okay, you know, you'll get there. In fact, just the opposite, he rebukes them. He criticizes them. He, he admonishes them. He tells them to, listen, snap out of it. And he does it by, by asking two questions, both of which imply that they should have been neither surprised nor doubtful that he is standing now in their midst. I mean, after all, he's the one who had promised to rise again. He is the one whom the witnesses have continually testified. We have seen the resurrected Lord. Why are you troubled, he says, verse 38. You shouldn't be. Why do doubts arise in your hearts? There should be no doubts. 
a few months earlier, when they were in the far north part of the country, Caesarea Philippi, Peter makes an amazing confession of Jesus as the Messiah. And following right on the heels of that incredible confession that you are indeed the King of Israel, Jesus says to them, Luke records it for us, Luke chapter 9, verse 22, the Son of Man, that's Jesus' most favorite way of referring to himself, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Why do you doubt Why are you troubled? I have been telling you for months that I would be betrayed into the hands of the leadership of the nation. They would crucify me. They would kill me. I would remain in the tomb for three days, and on the third day I will rise from the dead. When it happened, just like I told you, how come you won't believe? On his final trip into the city of Jerusalem, Right before Palm Sunday, he took the twelve aside, Luke tells us, Luke 18 and verse 31 and following, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon, and after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. And they understood none of these things. And this saying was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. It's incredible. The opaqueness of the human mind and heart. The unwillingness to receive the evidence right before their eyes. Listen, the disciples were slow to accept the resurrection. They were not looking for it. They did not make it up. This was something that was thrust upon them. It had been predicted for them, and and yet they didn't believe then, and they had trouble believing after. They don't expect Jesus to be raised from the dead, and they don't expect him to visit, and they certainly don't expect him to speak to them. Speak to them. They have to be persuaded. They're skeptical, just like the rest of humanity. Fourth evidence the evidence of touch. The evidence of touch. We've had the evidence of testimony, we've had the evidence of sight. We've had the evidence of hearing, and now we have the evidence of touch. The evidence of touch. Verse 39, see my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. He calls attention to the scars. The scars in his hands, or literally his wrists, and his feet. John's Gospel, he refers also to the spear wound in his side. 
says to Thomas later, go ahead, stick your hand in the wound. And be not unbelieving, but believing. Listen, spirits don't have bodies with holes in them. Left by the executioner's nails. This is a real human body. Flesh and bone, he says. It's an incredible fact. In fact, 60 years later, John the Apostle, the youngest of the twelve, reflecting back at the end of his life upon his experiences with Jesus, he writes this in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. In other words, we have seen, we have heard, we have touched the resurrected Christ. There's a very strong sense here of Jesus calling on them to satisfy themselves. Put an end to this doubting. I myself, do you see it, verse 39? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Again, very emphatically. It is no one but me. It is Jesus. It is me, the one whom you have walked with and slept beside and eaten with and ministered together with for the last three years. It is me. Take a look at the holes and believe. I'm no phantom. I am a resurrected man. Fifth, fifth, convincing proof. The evidence of eating. The evidence of eating, verses 41 to 43. Testimony, sight, hearing, touch, now eating. While they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, okay, so you see something's transforming here. Right? There's, there's joy and there's amazement, but they're still don't, they don't really have it grasped yet. He said to them, have you anything here to eat? Huh. Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and he ate it before them. Now listen, they are overwhelmed still at this point by his appearance among them. There's a, there's a surge of joyful emotion going on in them. They're, they're still not able to put all the pieces in place. The puzzle is still a little hazy for them. And so Jesus proceeds to, to give them further proof in order to nail it down for certain. There was no doubt in their minds. And in fact, by the time this encounter is over, that's exactly what will happen. John's Gospel tells us in John chapter 20 and verse 25 that that following this encounter with the resurrected Christ, they say to Thomas, who was not there to be with him, they say, we have seen the Lord. The food seems to do it for them. 
Jesus says, you have anything to eat? Now listen to me. He didn't ask the question because he was hungry. A, a glorified, resurrected body that passes through rock tombs and solid walls, a body that possesses the life of God, eternal life, doesn't need to eat to survive. This is not about that he's hungry. He does this because he wants to convince them that, that, that standing before them is a real human being. Flesh and bone. What better way to, to demonstrate the corporeal nature of the resurrected Christ than for him to eat? That sort of nails it down, doesn't it? So, perhaps, he's looking at the, the dishes on the table that were remaining there from dinner. That's what they were doing. They were having dinner, and he, he spies the table over there, and, and there's some food left over from the evening meal. And so, so he says to them, may I have something to eat? One of the disciples looks over there and says, yeah, there's some fish left on the plate. How about that? They hand him some broiled fish, and he took it. And he ate it before them, it says. He ate it before them. He consumes the fish. Now, this is hard to understand, to be sure. The glorified human body, the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Apostle Paul tells us that, that we who are united to him by faith, we who are his children, will someday share in his resurrected body. We too will have a, a glorified, resurrected body like unto his. I guess that means we can eat if we want to. But we don't have to. And that sounds like a really good deal, don't you think? Since eating is one of the great pleasures of life. A good gift from God. Listen to me. Hallucinations don't eat. Okay? Hallucinations don't eat. Dead people don't eat. Dead people don't eat. The only, the only people who eat are living people. Food is for the living. Incredible evidence. He eats. In the Gospel of John, we're told that after this, after the eating of the fish, that Jesus departs from their midst. He leaves the way he came. Not out the window and down the ladder, not out the door, not up the stairs. Right? He vanishes. He vanishes. But Luke's account here in Luke 24 continues. But I, but I want you to, to see that in the little white space here between verses 43 and 44, there's, there's actually a break of time the narrative. From verse 44 and following, Luke is going to speak about the events that occur over the next 40 days. So the resurrection encounter in the upper room on, on Sunday night 
of that first Easter is ended. But Luke continues the account, and as he continues, we'll continue, and we'll pick up a couple of more evidences. Luke will recount a number of other appearances of Jesus to his disciples over the next 40 days. It's during those 40 days, by the way, that they all travel north to Galilee. While they're in Galilee, they receive what's commonly known as the Great Commission. Then they travel back down to Jerusalem, and it is there that they encounter Jesus for the last time outside the city of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and it is from there that he ascends back to the right hand of the Father where he now sits dispensing grace interceding as the great high priest for his people and waiting for the Father to send him to set this world right and to establish his eternal kingdom. We arrive at what I'm calling the sixth proof, and the sixth proof is the evidence of Scripture. The evidence of Scripture. Verse 44. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That's a a way of referring to the entire Old Testament. That gathers up the entire Old Testament according to its major categories. And what Jesus does here is he he calls their attention to the fact that that everything they have seen and heard is in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. The ancient prophecies have come true. The evidence of the Word of God. Things like this. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13. The Passover lamb. You remember that. That was the lamb that is slaughtered and its blood is is wiped onto the the lentil and the doorposts of the house, right? While the nation was was in Egypt in bondage so that the death angel would pass over and not slay the firstborn, the children of Israel. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover lamb. It is his shed blood that causes the death angel to pass over his people. Jesus is the fulfillment of what's known as the scapegoat. Leviticus chapter 16, the scapegoat. This this ritual, this ceremony occurred once a year in the Day of Atonement in which a, 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 a goat, there would be two goats, one would be slaughtered and its blood would be sprinkled out on the altar, but The other goat, the the high priest, would place his hands on the head of what was called the scapegoat, and he would confess over this goat the sin of the people for the year, and then the goat would be driven off into the wilderness, symbolically taking away the guilt of the people for another year. Jesus is our scapegoat. He is the one who has carried away our guilt into the wilderness for it never to return. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that was read earlier, the suffering servant, where we read the prophet to say that the Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He is the substitute for his people. His death is rightfully our death. But he stood in 
to bear the brunt of God's wrath. Psalm 22, the crucifixion psalm, fulfilled in its details, where it says there in Psalm 22 and verse 18, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The gospel writers are very clear to tell us that psalm was fulfilled in its entirety, right down to the details of dividing up his garments in a card game. We have the resurrection psalm, Psalm 16 and verse 10. Psalm 16, verse 10, where it says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. A thousand years before, the psalmist predicts, Christ will not lay in the tomb and His body decay. God will not allow that to happen. He will be resurrected. Psalm 110, the enthronement psalm, where it begins in verse 1 and says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. These and many, many prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus Christ to the letter, to the letter. Verse 45. After saying that all these things that have been written about me must be fulfilled, then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. When Jesus walked along the road that Sunday afternoon, with the two disciples to the, going to the village of Emmaus. We're told over there in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24 and, and verse 27, that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. We just see this happening over and over again. Jesus unfolds the Scriptures for his disciples and say, listen, they all point to me. I am the fulfillment of all that they've said. Over these 40 days from his resurrection until his ascension to the right hand of the Father, Jesus gives the most incredible Bible study on the Old Testament imaginable. How wonderful it would have been, wouldn't it, to have been there and to to have received his inspired teaching. God himself, the author of the Scriptures, expositing his very word. But you know what? Even though you weren't there, you have the fruit of the study. What are you talking about? It's called the New Testament. It's called the New Testament. His apostles who who received his instruction on the proper understanding and meaning of the Old Testament wrote it down for us. And so we have access to it too. 
Listen, the Old Testament predicted that Messiah would suffer, Messiah would die, and Messiah would rise again from the dead on the third day. The Old Testament gave the ultimate purpose for the coming of Messiah, and that was to redeem fallen humanity and reconcile them back to their Creator. The Old, tell, the Old Testament tells us that the, that the means for reconciliation was for people to repent or, or to turn from their sin and flee back to God for the forgiveness that He offers. We're told here that the basis of that reconciliation is the name of Jesus. Forgiveness of sins, it says, verse 47, should be proclaimed in his name. What does that mean? In his name. That's just a shorthand way of referring to him. All that he is, all that he has done, bound up in the name of Jesus. It's his life, it's his death, it's his burial, it's his resurrection, it's his ascension. Said another way, it is the gospel which Paul says in Romans chapter 1 is the power of God unto salvation for any who will believe, for the Jew first and also for the Gentiles. Look what he says here. You are my witnesses of these things beginning in Jerusalem and going to all the nations. It is the gospel, the gospel for the world. It is the life-changing news that the redemption available in, in the Jewish Messiah is available to all people who will humble their hearts, repent of their sin, and come in faith to receive his life. Seventh and finally, the evidence of conversion. The evidence of conversion, verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. Behold, pay attention, listen up. I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They have been commissioned as witnesses. They are to go, beginning in Jerusalem, to all the nations of the world, and they are to bear witness to what they have seen, what they have heard, what they have touched, the resurrected Christ. They are to preach the glad tidings of peace with God through forgiveness of sin. Available through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. No longer are you fishermen. No longer are you tradesmen. You are now apostles. You are now witnesses. Your entire future has been transformed. It has been taken over. You don't go back to the old business anymore. You have a new mission and purpose in life. It is to proclaim the gospel, the good news. That's what the word gospel means. The good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you are to go everywhere and tell people. And they did. And it cost them all their lives. It cost them their lives. 
Jesus says to prepare you for this seemingly impossible task, that I will grant to you the promise of my Father, verse 49. The promise of my Father. Luke wrote a two-part record. Luke's gospel is part one. The book of Acts is part two. The book of Acts opens with the fulfillment of this promise, and that is that it is the Holy Spirit of God who descends on these men and so transforms them that they begin to turn the world upside down. It is the coming of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God, who has been promised in the Scriptures. Listen, there's no accounting for the transformation that occurs in the lives of these men. They are demoralized. They are terrified. They are, they are a bickering, fragmented, argumentative lot. They are concerned only with their own self-gratification, and yet they are now so transformed that they go from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, proclaiming insistently the news that the guy who the Romans crucified is alive. He has risen from the dead. And they won't shut up about it. People put them in jail. People flog them. People execute them. You would think that if this whole enterprise was something that they had made up, something of which they were not quite sure, if there were any shadow of a doubt in their mind, they would not have given their lives to it. They are sold out. Absolutely sold out. And listen, in one generation... They turn the pagan Roman Empire upside down. They can't be quiet. They have an unshakable conviction that he who was dead is alive. He's alive. I've given you seven convincing proofs this morning for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I've given them to you so so that you will know that He lives. And because He lives, you may live too if you will come to Him in faith. If you will confess your sin, if you will will repent, you will turn from your sin, you will give up on your self-effort. Try to make yourself right before God. Humble your heart. And believe. I'm giving you these proofs not so you can sit back and ponder them at your leisure. God does not allow such things. Doesn't matter whether the proof meets our, our personal standard or not. God has declared these things to be convincing proofs. It reminds me of the story of the guy who once went to the Louvre to look at the artwork there, and he sees the Mona Lisa, and he's standing there, and he says to himself, I, I don't know, doesn't do that much for me. Someone stands next to him and said, Sir, the painting is not on trial. You are. It's not whether these proofs meet your standard or not. God says they are convincing. And he calls upon you 
to give up on your independence, to humble your heart, and to receive the truth by faith. In times past, He has overlooked your ignorance. But He is now declaring to you that you must repent and believe. For He has fixed a time to judge through the man Jesus Christ, whom He raised from the dead. Listen, I said earlier, as the Scriptures say, it's appointed unto man to die once, and then comes judgment. You do not know the day of your death. No one knows. Just like you had no control over the day of your birth, you'll have no control over the day of your death. Just a year ago, last month, that an earthquake deep below the surface of the Pacific Ocean created a massive tsunami that roared at breakneck speed toward the islands of Japan. It struck the islands with a massive wall of water. In a matter of really just a few minutes, 19,000 lives were lost. Japan is one of the most technologically advanced nations in the world. They know about earthquakes. They know about tsunamis. They had prepared all kinds of man-made barriers to protect against such an event, and they were swept aside like that. Listen, those people didn't get up on that morning thinking, today is my last day. They got up thinking, life goes on. Kiss the wife, off to work, right? Rub the kids on the head, and off to work we go. I'll make another buck, and I'll be home tonight, honey. They didn't realize that for them, the moment had come. Some pass into the presence of their Creator in a catastrophic calamity like a tidal wave or tsunami. Others, it's a routine traffic accident. Still others, it's a heart attack or who knows what. But the thing to remember, beloved, is that we all have an appointment with our Maker. We all have an appointment, and, and we don't know when it is. You don't get a pop-up on your smartphone, right? Appointment with your Creator next week. Get ready. Okay? You can make a doctor's appointment. Fair enough. When God comes calling, there's no advance notice. And like this, you pass into eternity. Are you ready? Are you ready? Listen, you can summarize the Easter message this way. Life is fragile. Death is certain. And the tomb is empty. And it is that last reality that the tomb is empty that takes all of the fear out of those first two.
I beg you. I beg you this morning. Look inside. Are you right with God? Are you ready to face your Creator? Do you know that the tomb is empty? Do you believe that the Lord Jesus has been resurrected, that He has conquered sin and death, and that He freely and willingly grants to any who will call on His name eternal life? May you call out to Him. Let's pray. Our Father, I thank you that we can be here this morning, gathered in this place, to hear the Word of God, to hear, our Father, what you have for us, to reflect upon the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has conquered sin and death, who willingly hung on that cross and and absorbed the wrath that was legitimately do us. And He absorbed it all. And then He broke the bonds of death. He broke the bonds of sin. And He grants life to those who will call upon His name. Our Father, I pray for those this morning here who have not yet called upon Christ and ask that right now in this place, that you would so move in their hearts that you would compel them to come to the cross where they may receive salvation for their souls. Be merciful, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.